All right, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we pause amidst all the busyness of life, and we pause in a moment of silence and contemplation, a moment of offering ourselves before you, because we know that even when we're not paying attention, that you are, and we know that you're always here. We know that without you, everything that we know as reality would simply collapse. And so we want to thank you. We want to acknowledge you. We don't fully understand you, Lord, but, but that's okay. We don't have to. You fully understand us because you made it all. And so we want to simply recognize that you're here with us. And we want to thank you for giving us this life, for giving us your word in scripture and in Jesus and in your spirit that is with us. For giving us yourself so that we can know these deep truths and be strengthened and encouraged by them to live today. Thank you for all that. Through the Savior Jesus, we pray. Amen. Okay, friends, this is our last week of focusing on the scriptural image of light. Uh, we will have had nine weeks of studying that particular idea, that particular thought from lots of different perspectives. Next week, we will come back to our walk through the Apostles' Creed. If you remember last fall, we started walking through the Creed and looking at the different uh, theological affirmations there and trying to put all that together. And then I decided it would be good for us to have a break from that, so to speak, and focus on the light issue. Uh, and then, um, not an issue, the light theme if you will. Uh, and then we'll come back to the creed and we will finish the creed then uh, on Easter. Uh, you notice I didn't say Easter Sunday because I don't believe in the Department of Redundancy Department. Um, at any rate, we'll finish on Easter. So light is a fascinating theme. Um, as we w traveled through Syria, uh, lots of folks were talking about light uh, because there has been so much darkness, such profound darkness there, and still is. And so I come back to this conversation about light. In fact, I had the chance uh, to preach three times while I was there. Uh, one of them I knew was coming. The other two I didn't until we walked into a worship service in a church, and the host pastor would say, why don't you preach? Okay, here we go. <laughs> So they heard some of the stuff that you've already heard from me in a different context, of course. At any rate, thinking about this theme of light, the, the image of light, um, I'm impressed by how many times that word appears in Scripture and how much it just continues to speak to us. Uh, in a way, we could talk about light from here uh, until the cows come home uh, and, and we would be well served. But I want to look at two passages today, uh, both that mention this theme of light, this idea of light, and that will be our way of kind of closing off this particular study for a while. Let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 23 verses 1 through 4, and then we'll look at Matthew 17, verses 1 to 13. Before I read 2 Samuel, though, let me talk for just a minute about Samuel. 
Um, we don't often do a lot of study of First and Second Samuel. They are long books. Uh, they are history books. They are theological history books, history told with a theological purpose in mind. So let me tell you just a little bit about Samuel so we kind of get in our heads what it is that we're reading and the context of that before we read. First of all, the primary reason that we have 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel is because if you wrote the whole thing on one scroll, it would be too big and heavy to carry around. That's the simple fact. <laughs> there really is no break in the story per se. It's all one story. And so as we think about this, we're probably better just to think of the book of Samuel, the story of Samuel. Now, the book of Samuel tells a story about Samuel and Saul and David. And if you remember the history, the history is always important, at least it is to me, to put this in context. Israel, of course, comes into being in some sense as Moses leads the people out of Egyptian slavery. They wander in the wilderness for a generation or so, then they come into the promised land. They settle in the land of Canaan, and for about 300 years, the 12 tribes of Israel live in close proximity to each other, but they do not have a centralized government. That's what we would call it. They don't have a king. They're just 12 tribes. They're related to each other. They've had a, a common experience that has forged them together even more so in terms of slavery in Egypt and then rescue. Um, but the tribes were essentially, the 12 tribes were led by the elders of the tribe and then by people whom we call judges, right? We have a book of the Old Testament called Judges. That word judge in some sense is an unfortunate word because for us, what it means is somebody who sits in a courtroom uh, and, and you know hands out penalties for traffic violations or whatever else. When we think of a judge, I think that's what we think of. Or maybe somebody who looks at your you know fluffy little Pekingese dog and says, this one is a better dog than that dog over there, whatever. Um, I don't necessarily have anything against fluffy little Pekingese dogs, but whatever. In the Old Testament, the judges are, let me try to describe who they are. They are the elders, the wise leaders, the spiritual men, those who have great political and economic and social and, and leadership capabilities and qualities. They are kind of the, the natural leaders, if you will, of the tribes. The tribes were ruled. They were governed by these judges. There were many of them over the 300-year history, and there were judges in each of the 12 tribes. When something would happen that the 12 tribes would need to consult about, maybe somebody was attacking on one border of the general region where the tribes lived, they would, the judges would get together, figure out what to do, and move forward there. Well, the last of these great judges was Samuel. Samuel um, was, was one of these wise leaders who, at a particular period of history, somewhere around the year 1100 or so, um, the people in the 12 tribes were starting to say to each other, you know, all the other nations have a king, and we think we should have a king. We need a king. And Samuel 
counseled for them not to have a king. He said, we don't need a king like all the other nations have a king. We have God as our king, and we have the the Ten Commandments. We have the revealed Word of God as our law, and as long as we stick with all of that, we're good. We're fine. It's been working for 300 years. But no, the people insist on having a king. And so finally, Samuel relents, and in in an interesting conversation, God sort of relents as well. Samuel's talking back and forth to God, and they're agreeing, no, the people don't really have to have a king, but the people want a king. So Samuel anoints Saul as the king. Samuel, Saul, and David. That's the historic progression. Saul doesn't really want to be king, (laughs) and Saul's not really cut out to be a king. Saul lasts as king for about two years, and then everything begins to fall apart, and David comes to the fore. And of course, David is the greatest king that Israel will ever have. In a sense, he's their first real king, and he's the greatest king. David is a great military leader. David is a great politician. David is very passionate and faithful in his relationship with God, which is probably the most important thing that we can say about him. David is also a deeply flawed human being, which is a part of the story of David, but David still is the great king of Israel. He uh, forges and sort of bonds these 12 tribes together into what could be considered a true nation. In a sense, don't push it too far. In a sense, David is the George Washington of the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay? And so a lot of the story of the book of Samuel is this story. I've given you kind of a very brief history of that. And it's a story of of, of David's kingship. The passage we're going to read is a very interesting passage. Typically in histories that are written of ancient figures, not just biblical figures, but in other cultures and other religions, other nations. In histories written about those figures, you'll have a lot of facts and figures. You know, they fought so-and-so, they did such-and-such and whatnot. But every once in a while in those histories, you will have some reflection, if you will. You'll have a a word of praise or a word of summary about who this great leader is and where they came from and what they're all about. And the passage that we're going to read today is the beginning of a discussion, not of all the events of David's life, but more discussion about who is David? What is David all about as this great leader? Now, of course, leaders are important to us, right? Uh, bad leaders make things bad for us. Good leaders make things good for us. That's part of the part of the story here. Let's read this passage and you'll see how it begins to play itself out. This is 2 Samuel 23, 1-4. Now, these are the last words of David, the oracle of David, son of Jesse, the oracle of the man whom God exalted, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the favorite of the strong one of Israel, The Spirit of the Lord speaks through me. His word is upon my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, One who rules over people justly, ruling in the fear of God, is like the light of the morning, like the sun rising on a cloudless morning, gleaming from the rain on the grassy land. We'll stop right there. There's a lot more in the rest of the chapter about David. Let's look at what's being said there. This is an oracle about David. When that word oracle appears, it means we're going to hear usually a word about God, sometimes a word about somebody uh, who is very important in God's plan and God's activity in the world. Obviously, in this case, David, right? Notice it's, it's introduced as these are the last words of David. 
Has anybody here ever been with somebody who is uh, speaking their last words? Have you ever been with somebody speaking their last words? Yeah, I've had that opportunity before. We pay very, very close attention to the things people say at the end, right? Sometimes they're profound things. Sometimes they're kind of nonsensical things. Sometimes they're funny things, but we pay very close attention. Some folks think that this particular passage of the book of Samuel, that by the way is not written by David. There's some wonderful historian who's pulled this all together that we don't much don't know much about. The, some people think that these words are words that David actually wrote or dictated, and he intended them to be used at his funeral. You know, this is this is getting in my last word to you. And that could very well be the case. It would function very well in that way. The things we say about people at their funerals. <laughs> are very, very important things to say. And so here we have the last words of David, this oracle, this statement about David. And notice what we say. Now, remember, David has been the most successful. Well, at this point in history, we don't know that he's the best king that Israel's ever had. They've only had two, and, and Saul has ended up a disaster. But history will show us that David is the best king. What is the first thing that David wants to say about himself? He's the son of Jesse. David doesn't say, I was the king of Israel. David doesn't say, I managed to unite the tribes to in, in a confederation. David doesn't talk about all of his military victories or about any of that, about building the city of Jerusalem. He says, I'm the son of Jesse. In other words, I am part of the tradition and line and history and heritage of God's people. David starts off with that. I'm the son of Jesse. I am... The man whom God exalted, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the favorite of the strong one of Israel. Now, we can look at those phrases in one of two ways. We could look at them as, as rather self-centered. I'm the anointed one. I'm the favorite. Mom loves me more than you, that kind of thing, right? <laughs> or we can look at really where the emphasis is and notice that God is mentioned three times here. God is the one who exalts David. God is the one who anoints David. God is the one who makes David into who David is. David is pointing towards God and saying, whatever greatness there has been in my life is not about me so much as it is about God. And so that's the second thing David wants us to know. I'm the son of Jesse. I'm a human being. I'm one of the people of Israel and I am in a special place, a special position, if you will, because of what God has done. And then look at verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord speaks through me. His word is on my tongue. His word is on my tongue. Have any of you ever known someone who, who would say, God has given me this word to say? Right? We know people like that, Right? Uh, and in a sense, all of us could be people. Has God ever given you a word for someone, a message maybe, maybe just for one friend, maybe for a child, maybe for a spouse? God wants me to say this to you. Well, David here says, the spirit of the Lord is with me. That's a pretty powerful statement. I'll let you in on a little secret. One of the reasons that, that I sometimes have been successful recruiting people to do things is because usually what I do is walk into them and I say, Amy, God and I were talking today and he has a plan for your life and I'm going to tell you what it is. Uh-oh. 
Now, if Amy actually believes that's happened, she's going to pay attention, <laughs> right? Of course, we laugh about that, but there is truth in this, isn't there? I've had lots of people say to me before, you know, God has given me this word. And depending on who the person is and the history I have with them and all that sort of thing, uh, there are times I've paid very, very, very close attention because I actually believe God was speaking to them and God was saying something to them that was meant to be heard by me. So let's talk about David now as the one whom God speaks through. What an incredibly important and powerful role. This is who David is, okay? Now, the God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me. When E.F. Hutton talks, people listen. Remember those commercials? Right? Right there, we want to pay attention. If we do actually believe that David is someone touched by God, that God is specially present in some sense in David's life, and David says, this is what God says, we're going to pay attention, right? What does God say? What does God say then? That's essentially what we want to focus on. Look at the first thing God says. One who rules over people justly, ruling in the fear of God, is like the light of morning like the sun rising on a cloudless morning, gleaming from the rain on the grassy land. Let's dwell with that image just for a second. When we were in Syria, we were staying in a, in a little mountain town, and we had one of the biggest thunder, lightning, rain, hailstorms I have ever been in. And I've been in some big ones in the mountains of the West, especially when you're high up, you're in some big storms, right? I love huge storms, except when the water starts pouring into my bedroom as it did. But that's another story, right? There is nothing more beautiful than an amazingly huge, powerful storm, except perhaps the morning after the storm. You know what we're talking about? Everything is washed clean. The storm is over. The sun is out. You've survived the storm. What a beautiful image that is, right? The light, the light that's coming through. Now, hold that image, and what does God say is light for us? One who rules justly according to the fear of the Lord. Let's talk for just a second. Let me get you thinking in this way. Can you think of a circumstance not in modern history? I'm not going to get us into a political conversation about today. But let's talk about political conversations. Let's go back at least 50 years, okay? Think of a time in history when the leaders, however you want to define leaders, did not fear God and did not lead in God's justice and righteousness. Mention a period of history. Mention a person. Mention a situation. Can you think of anyone? Hitler. Mussolini, Stalin, go further back, can you? Henry VIII, think about how bad human life can be when our leaders do not revere God when our leaders are not just. Now, this one might be a little more interesting. Can you think of a time 
going back at least 50 years or more, when we had a great leader? Roosevelt? Which, which Roosevelt? Both? Okay. Teddy and FDR? Great. Yep. Who else? Lincoln. Eisenhower. George Washington. Reagan? No, he doesn't fit. He's, he's less than 50 years. Ah, ooh, man. <laughs> Jefferson. Yeah. That's right. Kennedy's more than 50 years, isn't he? Good golly, I'm old. <laughs> Everybody here remember where you were when Kennedy got shot? Was anybody not here when Kennedy got shot? Yeah. It's okay. We still love you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Think about, think about how good it can be. Think about how bad it can be. That's what we're talking about with David. In David's, in some sense, self-reflection about who I am and what the importance, the impact of my life has been, David's thinking, but he's also expressing God's word. What's the thing that this person who is inspired by God says? wants to talk about leadership, wants to talk about what makes a difference in the world for good. And it is the one who reveres God, the one who rules justly. That word justice is super important. I talked a little bit about it on Sunday. Maybe I'll talk about it uh, more this Sunday again. That word justice in the Old Testament is a huge, huge word, and it's not just about how we think of justice. If you think of a judge and justice, you get all involved with the court system and getting your summons to appear for jury duty and all that kind of stuff. The word justice in the Old Testament is a much bigger word. Justice wants to talk about when everything is the way it is meant to be, right? Justice happens, justice exists as far as the Old Testament is concerned, when people are following God, when people are following the Ten Commandments, when people are doing life as life is meant to be. That's justice. So a good leader is one who brings justice into the world, a one who makes things happen the way they're supposed to, who puts things together the way they're supposed to. These are huge concepts, huge questions, huge um, biblical ideas for us that are more than just ideas. They actually impact our lives every day. Is there anybody here not from the United States of America or Britain or one of the former British colonies? Okay, yes. Where are you from? Mexico, of course. Of course. Right? We have folks in this church from Hungary, Czechoslovakia, Poland. We have folks in this church who grew up in communist families on the other, what we would call the other side of the Iron Curtain. Have a conversation with them about the impact of leaders and justice or the lack thereof in society, right? For sure, for sure. So, the one who rules justly is like the light. The opposite, of course, the dark. That's part of the affirmation that Samuel wants us to focus on. But 
that's not the only story we're going to look at. Let's go to Matthew. Let's go to Matthew. Another place where light happens. And this is perhaps a more familiar story to you. It's a story that we call the transfiguration. Matthew 17, verses 1 to 13. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three dwellings here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, Peter was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud a voice said, This is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up and do not be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them, Tell no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? He replied, Elijah is indeed coming and will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him. They did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man is about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them about John the Baptist. We'll stop the story there. Familiar story to most folks here? This Sunday actually coming up works out well. It is Transfiguration Sunday. Uh, the church liturgically wants to remember this story. Some interesting things are going on here. Six days later. Six days is an important period in the biblical way of thinking about things, right? God worked for six days to make the whole creation, and then on the seventh day, He rested. We're often told that six days happens, and then something big is going to happen. Many other instances in Scripture, I've got a couple of the references cited there for you in your notes. Okay, six days, and Jesus goes up the mountain. Anytime a mountain appears in Scripture... Pay close attention. Big things happen on mountains, right? Charlton Heston goes up the mountain and comes back with the Ten Commandments, right? Jesus goes up the side of the mountain and preaches the Sermon on the Mount. Lots of important things happen on mountain. Have you ever had an important mountaintop experience? You've heard that phrase before, right? Lots of important things happen. The mountains are closer to God. The mountains are where ancient societies built their temples and their shrines because they were closer to heaven. Interesting idea. Says something to us. Jesus goes up the mountain. So six days, they're going up the mountain. We know something big is coming, right? The drum roll begins to start and the scene darkens a little bit and the music gets a little bit more serious and, and something big is going to happen. Jesus takes with him three of the 12 disciples, Peter and James and John. They are, in a sense, the inner circle of that group of 12, right? Peter, of course, would play out so importantly in the early life of the church. James, Jesus' brother. John, the one whom Jesus entrusted the care of his mother, Mary, right? When we see Peter, James, and John together, we know something big is going to happen. Okay, so the scene is set for us in a way. And then what happens in the scene? To be honest with you, nobody knows. We don't really know what happened. 
We can't know in the sense of knowing the physical action that was involved, the material transformation. We do know something about what happened. I'm not suggesting we don't know anything. We have the report right here. Suddenly, Jesus' face shone like the sun. Look at all the references to light in this one passage. Jesus' face shines like the sun. His clothes become dazzling white, and a bright cloud overshadows them. We got big-time light going on. Anytime there's big-time light going on in Scripture, something important is happening. We call this the transfiguration. This is the only time in Scripture when we're, we're told about this particular thing happening. Maybe it was the only time that it actually did happen. There might have been other times that were not reported. We can never know that. Some scholars would want to say, well, of course this was the only time. If there were other times, they would have talked about it. Maybe, maybe not. Not that important. But we are told here that Jesus is transfigured. The Greek word here uh, is the same word that you and I uh, would use to talk about metamorphosis. How many of you, when you were in kindergarten or first grade, the teacher walked into class with this little wire cage and a few leaves in the cage and, and a worm? Right? How many of you were those teachers? Anybody do that, right? And, and over time, you watch the worm, and the worm turns into a cocoon, and you wait a little while longer, and out of that cocoon comes a beautiful butterfly. That's metamorphosis. Okay, transfiguration. Metamorphosis is when the true reality of a thing is revealed. Jesus looks radically different. Now, later on in the appearance stories of Jesus after the resurrection, we get some sense of people seeing that difference, but here it's just full-blown. We don't fully comprehend it because we don't fully comprehend the nature of all things and the existence of God, etc., etc., etc. But whenever God appears, there's always light. There's always light. Why do you think Jesus took the three disciples with him and allowed them to witness this experience? Why do you think he did that? Yes. Okay. Yeah. The law says you got to have three witnesses to an event. Good to have three witnesses. Yes. Yes. It strengthens their faith. It strengthens their faith. That's probably the most important thing that we're talking about here. Most of the story of Matthew is about, you know, Jesus being born and all of Jesus teaching and preaching. And then Matthew is going to go into a long conversation about the disastrous end of Jesus' life. There's no other way to look at it, right? This popular, charismatic preacher upon whom so many people are laying their hopes ends up being arrested, tried, convicted, executed. <laughs> Jesus, we believe reveals himself for who he actually is to three people who are the leaders of the leaders so that they can know in some deeply convicting kind of way who Jesus is because they're getting ready to go into deep, deep trouble. Deep, deep trouble. Has that ever happened with you? 
Has Jesus ever revealed himself to you in the midst of your deepest trouble? It's happened with me. It happens with many others. It doesn't happen with everybody in the same way, right? But it's one of the things that I've come to believe about the way God kind of decides how he's going to show up or not. God is always here, but sometimes God is more here, right? More present to us. And I think that God sometimes says, you know, this is the worst thing you're going to go through. So right now you need to see me just a little more clearly than you normally do. If you haven't had that experience yourself, talk with someone who has, and it will strengthen your faith. The disciples are getting ready to go into holy hell. I use that term very carefully. And so he reveals who he is to them. Now, in the midst of all that, of course, two other people show up, Moses and Elijah. Now, I've just said that David is one of the most important characters of the Old Testament. Two others who are equally important, maybe more so in some sense, are Moses and Elijah. Moses, of course, being the great deliverer of the people from Egyptian slavery. If that hadn't happened, there would be no Israel. There'd be no story. And Elijah, the great prophet, some would argue the greatest prophet of the Old Testament, who walked with God. He, Elijah was understood to be someone who was right there with God, right? The disciples will later on say, we thought Elijah was going to come back. And there's a long conversation about Elijah and the spirit of Elijah and John the Baptist and whatnot. We don't have time to get into all that conversation. But here you've got Jesus and Moses and Elijah, and then you've got good old Peter. <laughs> I hadn't thought about this before until I was reading Dale Bruner again. Dale Bruner says, leave it to Peter to interrupt this holy moment with his decision to start a building campaign, right? <laughs> Let's build three booths. Let's build three little churches right here. You know, wow, this is cool. Let's build something. You know, <laughs> whatever. Peter's fascinating. Peter, I mean, Peter never thinks. <laughs> Peter just does. <laughs> right? And Jesus said, no, 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 no. That's not what this is about. Right? Now, Moses and Elijah show up. And what does that say about Jesus? What does that say about Jesus? If Moses and Elijah are there. What would that say to you, right? Here's this person, let's say you're a first century Jew, okay? You've heard about Moses all your life. You've heard about Elijah all your life. They're two of the greatest figures of your entire faith system. And now there's this guy, Jesus, who's walking around having some conversation. And all of a sudden, Moses and Elijah and Jesus show up. Jesus is there and Moses and Elijah come to be with him, right? Yes, there's huge respect for the Jewish tradition and history. Jesus is, is sort of one of them. Of course, later on, we're going to learn that they are sort of one with Jesus, right? Right? Yes, there is huge respect. Any Christian who wants to disrespect Jews is not a very thoughtful Christian. Let's just say it out loud, right? The Jews are our cousins. Judaism itself is the family from which we come, the, the root of our family, okay? And here we have an affirmation of that. Moses and Elijah play a very important role here. But notice what happens. Jesus is transfigured. They show up. They disappear. And then this bright cloud kind of gets going. And what's the business about the cloud? The voice of God speaks. Remember the other place where the cloud shows up or God, the voice of God speaks? In the baptism of Jesus, right? And... 
And at his crucifixion, God shows up, right? God shows up all the way along through Jesus' life, which makes people begin to think, oh, listening to what God said, Jesus is God. What does God say here? Same thing he says at the baptism. This is my son, my beloved, with whom I'm well pleased. He doesn't say that about Moses. He doesn't say that about Elijah. So here we have arguably the two greatest figures or two among the several greatest figures of the Old Testament, and they're below Jesus. God shows up and says, Jesus is the one. There's one little phrase that's added here that's not in the baptism stories. In the baptism stories, God shows up and says, this is my son, my beloved, with him I'm well pleased. Wow, that's pretty impressive. Jesus is somebody we better pay attention to. And then God makes it crystal clear here, maybe just for Peter's sake, I don't know. God says, listen to him. (laughs) What part don't we get? Listen to him. Listen to him. All this occurs in the presence of light. Now, let's put these two stories together for a second. Let's see if it actually actually works. David is characterized as light. The light of the morning after a storm. Jesus is characterized as light. Light is present with Jesus. How can you compare Jesus and David? Let's let's put Jesus and David side by side. Remember, in our belief, we say that Jesus was of the lineage and the house of David, of Jesse. They're the same family. They're the same people. They participate in the same thing that God is doing. They're part of the same story. In David... God is working to establish His justice, to reestablish His creation the way He wanted it. In Jesus, God is doing exactly the same thing. David is never called God's son in the same way that Jesus is called God's son. Although David is sometimes called God's son, meaning one whose heart is after God. The church would later say Jesus literally is God's son, meaning he is one with God. He's of the same substance, not born after God. God is not Jesus' daddy. Okay, When we say Jesus is the son of God, what we mean to say is that Jesus is of God. Like father, like son. They're part of the same substance and being. Okay, That's who Jesus is. The light that we're meant to see, the light that enlightens our lives, the light that drives away darkness, has to do with who Jesus is, what Jesus was doing, and then what Jesus told us to do. It has to. Why would God have said, listen to him? Right? Have you ever listened to Jesus? What does Jesus say to do? Give me some answers. What does Jesus say to do? Love one another. Say what? Love God. Follow me. What else? You know a lot of stuff that Jesus says. Yes. Yeah, there's a personal response involved. Okay. The... the, (laughs) I was going to say, this is not rocket science. It's not rocket science. This is spiritual science. 
God literally speaks in the person and words of Jesus. Jesus says something to you. He says lots of things to you and to me. Things like, when did you see me naked or hungry or imprisoned? Right? When did you do what I told you to do? When you did to one of them. It's pretty simple. It's not. It's not unintelligible. People who say, I don't understand what the Bible says, or I just, you know, I don't think we can know what God wants. I, I understand what they mean by all of that. But, but folks, it's very simple. There's Jesus. There's the light. When the, when the light appears, you can see things, can't you? <laughs> right? When the light's there, you can see it. Jesus is the light. David is the light. Okay? Jesus, of course, more so than David. David is a, is a precursor, a prefigurer of Jesus. And it's simply revealed to us there. Listen to Jesus. Do what Jesus says. We can have arguments sometimes about what would Jesus do, right? What is the Jesus thing in this situation? It's not always the easiest thing to implement, but, but still we have it right there. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. What do you think about all this? If Jesus is the light of God come into the world, then what are you going to do with Jesus? Listen to him. Reflect him. Be his hands and feet. Right? How many of you wake up in the morning thinking today... I'm going to be the hands and feet of Jesus and reflect the light of Jesus and I'm going to listen to Jesus. What's the first thing most of you think about? What do you think about when you wake up in the morning? It's time to get up. Yeah, thank God I'm still here, right? <laughs> yeah, I sniff and say, oh good, Helen remembered to make the coffee. <laughs> I mean, there's, of course, there's lots of stuff that goes on in our heads. This, this event of the transfiguration is a, is a, it's a, it's a, a pivotal event. Okay. Jesus will be revealed in many other ways, sometimes in rather veiled fashion, sometimes in very overt fashion. You can't get more overt than in the resurrection, but this is like a pre-resurrection appearance, isn't it? Isn't it? We forget. I think we forget sometimes that before the suffering and the death, Jesus revealed himself to these men. Okay? Jesus has done that since then with lots of folks. If you read what I call spiritual literature, spiritual history, you'll find many people throughout history who write of an experience of the presence of God as dazzling, blinding, truth-revealing, life-giving light. Has that happened with some of you here? I know it's happened with some folks in this congregation. It happens lots of other ways. What are you going to do with Jesus? You're going to follow him? You're going to listen to him? You're going to pay attention to him? Are you going to trust him? Do you know anybody else who's been transfigured? Nope, you don't. 
So why would you listen to anybody else? And yet, how many times do we listen to this person or that person or whatever? Fascinating. Thoughts, questions? What's rolling around in your heads? Your heads are empty. Okay, there we go. <laughs> yes, Vicki. No, I didn't need that. On the mountaintop. Yep. They, so they see Moses and they see Elijah, and then it occurs to them to ask Jesus, why do people say we Elijah has to return mm -hmm. before the Messiah comes? So they believe they're with the Messiah. They don't have any doubts at this point. On the mountain, they, they view the this prophet, and then they fall down in fear. But then Jesus says he's already returned in John the Baptist. Mm -hmm. I know you didn't want to get into this, but I am so confused on those little... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> let, let me try to give you a little sum of that. It is important because this actually relates to our vision of Jesus. When we see Jesus in this way, we know it's Jesus. We know God is revealing himself, but we don't fully understand what's happening. And the disciples didn't fully understand, right? They had seen Moses. They had seen Elijah. Part of Israel's expectation was that a great prophet would rise again who would speak God's truth, and finally everybody would listen to God and everything would be okay again in Israel. That's why they were looking for Elijah, right? Remember when Jesus is on the cross and he's crying out, some think that he's asking Elijah to come and rescue him, right? The early church, the earliest folks thought of Jesus maybe as a great prophet like Elijah. They, they didn't quite get it still that Jesus was even above Elijah. Here we have evidence of that. But you know, you want to say, why didn't Peter and James and John go tell the others, Jesus really is God's son. He's greater than Elijah. We know this now. We don't have much evidence of that. The disciples themselves are trying to figure out, okay, well, Jesus, you were there, but then Elijah was there. And we know that Elijah was somebody special, but man, we also know that maybe Elijah was going to come back. And, and what's up? What's going on with that? They were questioning. They were unclear on what that was. I think we do not have the whole conversation recorded here. We have a piece of that, okay? And Jesus says, well, Elijah's already back, right? John the Baptist, this, not Elijah the person, but the message of Elijah is present in what John the Baptist has been saying. Repent and turn around and listen to God, okay? Even before Jesus, you had an opportunity to do that. Finally, God finally, in some sense, God gets so tired and exasperated and says, okay, I've told you 800,000 ways. This is the last way that I'm going to do it in Jesus, okay? So when Jesus says Elijah's already here, and the disciples say, oh, and John the Baptist, they, they're, the disciples are beginning to connect the message, Elijah had the message, John the Baptist had the message, now Jesus has the message, but Jesus is going to enact the message. Jesus is going to make what God wants to do in the world actually happen in himself. That's part of what we say happens in Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross and then his resurrection from the, from the grave. Does that help make more sense out of it to you? you got to kind of fill in some of those blanks and understand the confusion in the disciples' minds. They were still... I mean, they'd had this glimpse they knew, but they weren't quite sure yet, okay? It was only until after the resurrection that they're finally sure. And even then, some like Thomas, I think, right? And that's the way it is with us spiritually. We're absolutely 100% certain, except it's of such a different quality and character 
than anything else in our lives that we still struggle to understand it, and yet we're called to follow it. Did any of that make any sense whatsoever? Okay. Yes. Yeah, were they not? Yeah. Yeah, they were looking for the superhero king coming in, you know, on the, the, the white stallion and clean everything up. That was another vision that the people had. You know, they're just kind of trying to look into the future based on what their past has been. And some would say, okay, God's going to send us another David, right? David appeared on the scene and David made everything okay for a while, you know? Um, is that going to be, you know, God riding down in the sky out of the clouds? Well, there was some said God could do that if God wants to do that. The apocalyptic writers later took that idea up and said that's the way it's going to happen at the end. Um, you know, that end hasn't happened yet. And personally, I don't look for that kind of an end. But it is looking for God to do something about everything, and here's the great Christian message. God did do something about everything decisively for all time in suffering, death, resurrection. Right. That was God riding in on his white horse, not wiping out all evil in the world in the way that we wanted God to, but in the way that God chose to do it, taking it all into himself and then saying to us, you go out and keep doing it. Well, he left with us with free will. Yeah, we're st we still have the free will thing going on, Yeah, right? Which Paul would say, that's a great thing. God is allowing us to continue to try to get this message. God hasn't called an end to it, right? Think about that. Maybe none of us would have existed. If God had come back in the first century and called an end to it all, none of us would be here. I kind of like being here. Do you like being here? Not all the time. Sometimes it's not so fun. You know, after 20 hours on an airplane, I'm not so sure I wanted to be created, but that's another story. Yeah. Isn't this fascinating stuff? It's all wound up there. Yes. I'm curious. I can understand why back then the Jewish people were looking for a mighty figure to come and conquer all and to put everything right. But there's been so much that's been written about Jesus. And through these years, it has not been disproved. You know, it's it's held its own. Mm -hmm. So why are the current Jews who have their own scholars, why haven't they looked further into this? Because they are people of God mm -hmm. to try to embrace what Jesus has brought to yeah. us. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, let me answer it in two ways. Number one, it's always dangerous to say, to talk about the Jews as if they were, and I, I know you're not doing this, I'm, I'm, but when we, when we talk about the Jews as just one monolithic block of people who all think the same thing, okay? We know that's, that that's not true in the Christian church, and it's certainly not true in Judaism. There's lots of different ways that Jews think about these things. And many Jews respect Jesus, they love Jesus. Most will not go so far as to say he was the final, he was the Messiah, is, was, is the Messiah, right? Because they're still waiting for the world to be put back together the way it's supposed to be. Christians want to say God is making that happen through us. And some point down the line, we have this vision that God will. In the meantime, we just do what we do. Jews are saying, no, we're still waiting that, that Jesus wasn't the final one. And in that way, they're right. Jesus did not put the world back together completely and totally for all time uh, in the way that we would like that to happen. Otherwise, everything would have been perfect since then. Um, 
And so I think serious Jews, okay, when I, when I say serious, I mean the ones who really think about it and study it, um, have a good point in saying it wasn't Jesus. It is a matter of faith when we say that, yes, that's what God was doing. And, and it was Jesus. And it still is Jesus, okay? Um, most Jews that I know are like most Christians that I know, and they really don't think very deeply about these things. They really don't. Uh, most people who call themselves Christian that I encounter uh, haven't been uh, to church in six months and they've never sat seriously in a Bible study since they were eight years old doing flannel graphs and coloring pictures of Moses leading the people through the Red Sea. That's the extent of their knowledge. And it's, that's sad. I don't mean to poke fun at that. I mean to lament that. When you begin to think more deeply about it and study more deeply, and I know I'm preaching to the choir because you guys are sitting in here listening to me go on and on and on. You're trying to figure this out like I am. Um, when you do that, you begin to see how it all holds together. I happen to believe that God really does not intend to send one great earthly final leader he's gonna, who's going to pull it all back together because there's no such person who can exist. Okay, even David, the greatest king, okay, David could not have been successful had he not had a whole lot of people around him and had he not had the, the cooperation of the rest of the tribes of Israel to do things the way they're supposed to do them. A leader, anybody can stand up and say, guys, we're doing it all wrong. Here's how we've got to do it. But then everybody else has to do it that way. And so that's why I think Jesus works with us individually. If you don't follow the leader, it doesn't make any difference who the leader is. Right? We've had some phenomenal leaders in our past, just thinking about our national history, have said, we got to do this, 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 and this, and they were right, but nobody would do it. We all have to do it. That's the point of Jesus. We all have to do it together. Knowing what to do is not the issue. Having the will to do it, getting over our self-centeredness, getting over our apathy, getting over our pride, getting over our desire just to create our own little lives in the way we want them to be and we don't really want to think about anybody else, there's the problem. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, help us. Amen. Yeah.